Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 20th, 2019, and this is show number 754. Well, we got a big, big show today. We've got a story of a Hackintosh. We're going to talk about my clean install tutorial. I've got words on what I learned at MacTech, and we've got security bits with Bartboo Shots. But before we get into that, we should talk about Chit Chat Across the Pond. This week was another installment of Programming by Stealth. You see, Bart has been noticing that there are a few key features in JavaScript that haven't really congealed for me, and he's circling back on those in hopes of firming them up. I confessed to him recently that I've never done a for loop of my own spontaneously. Dorothy has to spoon feed them to me or Bart spoon feeds them to me. So he's circling back in hopes of firming some of these concepts up. The other reason he's going over some of these topics is that new options have been created since we first covered them. The first of these subjects is objects as dictionaries. So uh, we're going to, when we get into the for loop part, I do slow him down quite a bit during that part, but we speed up again and we get into what are actually more challenging topics, but came more easily to me. Anyway, we had a lot of fun doing during this episode, even when I was stuck. You can find this episode in the Programming by Stealth feed or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed in your podcatcher of choice. Or of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com. Now, next week, I promise I'm going to be back with a fantastic Chit Chat Across the Pond light episode. I've already scheduled the guest, and the guest has already sent me the uh, outline of what we're going to talk about, so we're ready to record next week and get back on the bandwagon with Chit Chat Across the Pond light episodes. In 2011, Steve and I went on a Mac Mania cruise in Australia, where I had the pleasure of teaching some of the classes. Leo Laporte was the headliner, and he planned a tweet-up in Sydney for his fans, so Steve and I kind of tagged along. At the tweet-up, we met a lovely gentleman named Trevor Drover, and we really enjoyed chatting with him. I think I liked him even more because he brought us a bottle of wine, as I recall, and he became my friend for life. He's done a couple of audio reviews for us in the past, one about transferring a disk from an Apple IIe to a MacBook Pro, and one about the OWC Thunderbolt 2 box, dock sorry, way back in 2016. Well, he's back today with a super geeky review. I'm going to be quiet now and let you hear about his awesome adventure. Hi, no silly castaways. Trevor from Australia here. When Mojave was released last year, I was disappointed that my 2011 iMac was deemed incapable of running it. I'd upgraded to 20 gigabytes of RAM, 500 gigabyte SSD, alongside the existing one terabyte hard drive and super drive. It is a very competent iMac that I love using. So my problem to be solved was what do I replace it with? Perhaps a new 27 inch iMac was on the cards, but with a base price in Australia of $2,799, plus $320 to increase the RAM to 16 gigabytes, and another whopping $800 to replace the one terabyte fusion drive with a one terabyte SSD, bringing the total to $3,919. Very pricey. I had been aware that Mac OS X runs on the same Intel processors as Windows computers. Lots of people had been using these to make a cheap Mac clone. A little research quickly showed me how extensive the practice was and the fantastic wealth of information advice available. Now, we all know that Alison is a huge Apple fangirl, but I've been an Apple fanboy for 35 years and hanging on to Apple gear for far too long. 
I have never been tempted by the dark side. And in my collection, I have an Apple IIe, an Apple IIgs was edition, a Macintosh 512K, a G4 Power Mac Tower, an iBook G4, a 2009 15-inch iMac Pro, a 2013 13-inch MacBook Pro, a 2009 Mac Mini, a couple of iPads, a couple of iPhones, and a handful of Apple TVs. Clearly, I've already contributed thousands of dollars to Apple's coffers over the years. The most important task when going down the Hackintosh path is to do lots of research. The PC computer I chose is an HP Elite 8300 with 8 gigs of RAM and a 250 gig hard drive that I picked up for $72. They were built to commercial specifications with a much better case, a reliable power supply and a motherboard designed to be on 24-7. And unlike most computers I have worked on, this was spotlessly clean inside. My first challenge, I discovered, was that the inbuilt graphics of the Intel i5 Ivy Bridge family of processors in the HP computer would not be good enough, and I'd have to use a dedicated graphics card or upgrade the processor to an Intel i7. I chose to do the latter. I located an Acer computer online with required i7 Ivy Bridge processor and 4 gigs of RAM with no hard drive and picked it up for $97. My other purchases for this project a used 24-inch monitor for $50, a display port to HDMI cable for $8, and a tube of thermal paste to use when swapping out the Intel processors for $9. I recently purchased a Fenvi HB1200 Wi-Fi and Bluetooth card for $51 to give me a full communications options, bring the all-up costs to $287. Wow. The first thing I found when working on the HP computer was how easy it is to open and access everything inside, nothing like the complexities of working on any recent Mac model. The top is designed to be taken off the internal power supply and DV drive hinge up out of the way to make everything visible. I replaced the existing 250 gigabyte drive with an old 2 terabyte hard drive and also included a 240 gigabyte SSD I had lying around along with the extra 4 gig of memory from the Acer computer and I was ready to start playing with the software to get this beast operational. As I had done my research before making any purchase I had found what I needed on the Tony Mac X86 website, a complete 10 step Mac OS Sierra guide for HP 6300 Pro slash 8300 Elite. Link in the show notes, of course. Now, this could be seen to be a bit of a retrograde step, as my iMac is already running High Sierra. This project will give me a computer running Sierra, but as a proof of concept, it seemed worth doing. The guide provided all the links to the tools necessary to do the installation. This may come as a shock, Alison, but me, a mere male, actually read the whole set of instructions, twice. Rather unusual for me, and then I downloaded all the tools and had a look at how they operated. The scariest thing I had to do was update the HP motherboard BIOS, because if anything went wrong in the process, it could make the motherboard useless. As I worked my way through the instructions, everything came together. I trusted the changes would work in the end, and they did. I played with Sierra on the Hackintosh for a month or two, then as we were selling up a moving house, I put it away until recently. With Catalina on the horizon, I had that that decision to make again, move on to a new iMac or get my Harvey and then Catalina running on my Hackintosh.
So another search for Mojave instructions to, took me to a great 12-minute YouTube video that seemed to make the whole process much easier. Link in the show notes. I installed the SSD into an external USB 3 enclosure and plugged that into the MacBook Pro running Mojave and used disk utility to format the SSD as APFS and then did a clean install of Mojave. When disk utility formatted the SSD, it created a hidden 200 megabyte FAT32 EFI partition. EFI stands for Extensible Firmware Interface, and when combined with System Partition, it becomes a new acronym, ESP, which is a partition on a hard disk drive or solid-state drive that is used by computers adhering to the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, or UEFI. When a computer is booted, UEFI firmware loads files stored on the ESP to start installed operating systems and various utilities. An ESP contains the bootloaders or kernel images for all installed operating systems which are resident in other partitions, device driver files for hardware devices present in a computer and used by the firmware at boot time, system utility programs that are intended to be run before an operating system is booted, and data files such as error logs. This is where the magic to run a Hackintosh starts. There is a utility created by the Hackintosh community to install the Clover bootloader for this initial setup. Clover is a specially designed bootloader that allows users to boot and install macOS on non-Mac computers. Clover also supports booting many other operating systems such as Windows, Ubuntu and other Linux distributions. I installed the naked Mojave SSD back into the Hackintosh and turned it on. The computer booted from the 2TB hard drive with the existing Clover Boot Manager configuration files I'd previously created. The Clover Boot Manager automatically takes you to a screen similar to holding down the Option key when starting up your Mac, displaying all bootable partitions. And if no key is pressed after 5 seconds, it starts up the partition you last used. I simply selected the Mojave disk and the computer was up and running. How do Mac OS upgrades work, you might ask? Well, I cloned my iMac High Sierra disk onto a partition on the Hackintosh hard drive and upgraded it to Mojave using the normal App Store download and install service. It was no different to doing the same thing on a Mac. I did not have to make any changes or do anything extra. I then installed the apps I really needed onto the Mojave SSD, about one-tenth of my previous collection. After using it for a couple of weeks, I created another Mojave clone onto another 480 gig SSD. I removed from an external drive and upgraded to Catalina when it was released. Again, everything went smoothly. The beauty of a computer that opens up so easily is that I can swap out drives in seconds. I removed the working DVD drive to make it easy to access the three SSDs drives I have in use, Mojave, Catalina and Windows 10. I also did a Windows 10 install. During my research, I saw that many references to having multiple operating systems on the one computer, such as different versions of Mac OS, Linux and Windows. Why not install Windows 10 to use and keep me one step ahead of my students in the basic computing classes I am occasionally asked to run? I downloaded the Windows 10 installer from the Microsoft's own website for free, then used the tool called UNET booting to install Windows 10 onto a 16 gigabyte USB flash drive. 
With this device, I was able to install Windows 10 onto a partition on the 2TB hard drive. During the install process, I was asked for a Windows product key. These are 25-character alphanumeric strings, and if you've ever looked at a Windows computer, you will see that there is a license sticker on it with a product key. As the product key on my HP computer was for Windows 7 Pro, the installer dutifully installed Windows 10 Pro, and now it is fully activated at no cost. Whilst the Windows 10 installation runs quite quickly on the spinning hard drive, I decided that I would install various versions of macOS new 1TB SSD and install Windows on the old 240GB SSD. As the HP runs silently with the only noise coming from the spinning hard drive reading and writing data, this was another reason to switch to SSDs. I had to sort out a few wrinkles though. Hackintosh is connected to the HDMI input via an $8 display port to HDMI cable. And the on-screen text was just passable, but was driving me towards a larger, higher resolution monitor with, with the display port input. When the cable failed one day, I connected the Hackintosh via a genuine HP display port to DVI adapter, and the picture improved dramatically. So cheap cables come with their own problems. The Hackintosh initially identified itself as a 2012 Mac Mini. I assumed, as it is running Ivy Bridge Processor from that year, it ran all operating systems without any problems. However, when I installed the Fenby communications card, I had Bluetooth but no Wi-Fi under Mojave. But strangely, everything worked okay under Catalina and Windows. Some tweaking was called for. As part of the Hackintosh setup, there is a Mac OS application called Clover Configurator that's let you customize hundreds of parameters associated with Clover EFI configuration files used to boot the computer. This is a very powerful and dangerous tool if you are not careful. One of the features I used was the ability to change the model of Mac that the OS thought it was running on, thereby enabling different features. I switched the model from a 2012 Mac Mini to a 2012 MacBook Air, and hey presto, Wi-Fi was now working under Mojave and Catalina. But all was not good. The wired keyboard would not work under Catalina, only the Bluetooth devices. After several more changes, I settled on a 2013 iMac, and everything working beautifully. A new crucial 1TB SSD set me back $169 with a five-year warranty. Not bad considering Apple's exorbitant price. That has brought the t- all-up cost for this project to $456. So how does the Hackintosh compare to my iMac? First, the good things. I had a lot of fun pulling it all together. It runs twice as fast as my iMac when run using handsbrake to transcode videos. The Ivy Bridge i7 processor runs at 3.4 GHz. My Apple Watch unlocks it. It normally runs much cooler, typically 35 degrees, but that does increase to 70 when I'm transcoding video, and even then there is no fan noise. There are four USB ports on the front, two USB 2 ports and four USB 3 ports on the back. That's 10 USB ports versus four on my iMac. And as I've said before, it's very easy to physically work on. All applications I've tried work exactly the same way. What does not work? Well, there's no camera or microphone on display, but I have them covered up on my iMac anyway. What could be better? 
Well, my monitor is full HD, but not as big as clear as the iMac. The sand is handled by a very small speaker that is barely audible, nothing like the, what the iCamac can deliver. The computer is a medium-sized black box, functional, but not as felt as a Mac. Upcoming improvements. As I am now using my Hackintosh as my everyday Mac, I am investigating a replacement monitor to give me the same 2560 by 1440 resolution as my old iMac, the maximum resolution of the Intel HD 4000 graphics. Okay, it's not nearly as good as the modern iMac's 5120 by 2880 resolution, but my eyes are not that fussy. To give me decent sound, some external multimedia speakers may be on the cards if those in a replacement monitor don't come up to scratch. And I'll probably add another 16 gigabytes around, bringing up to 24 gigabytes just because I can. So maybe I can delay purchasing a new $4,000 iMac for a couple of years. Well, I love this, Trevor. This was fantastic. It sounds like such a fun thing to do. I don't know if I'm ever going to do it myself, but, uh, you know, who knows? You never know what kind of weird hackery thing I might have fun doing. I do want to say that creating a Hackintosh is not endorsed by Podfeed Podcasts. This uh, article is meant to inspire the geek in all of us and to look at creative ways to make tech work for you. See relevant laws in your own country before testing a solution like this. I am really excited to tell you about my latest video tutorial for Screencast Online. It was on how to do a clean install of macOS. I'm excited because it was one of the most terrifying and challenging tutorials I have ever created. But it's a subject that I'm really passionate about. I really believe in doing a clean install from time to time. But again, terrifying. So this was a very difficult video to create for several reasons. The first hard part was how to make a visually interesting video when a big portion of the upfront work is just me talking. I had to try to convince people why this was a good idea. Why would you want to do a clean install? When should you do it? And, you know, how long is it going to take? And there's no video screencast at all on this part of the video. The good news is that J.F. Brissett is the supervising editor for Screencast Online, and he's extremely talented in creating visually interesting information out of what would be completely static if I did it. I learned after the video was published, and I thank J.F. for the work that he did on my video, that Don McAllister also helped out a little bit. Anyway, with uh, JF, he and I brainstormed beforehand what kind of graphics I might want to use. So I just kind of plopped in static images at certain timestamps with no regard for how it looked. I didn't make the text look good. I didn't animate it at all. But JF turned it into a thing of beauty that keeps your eyes entertained while I do the talking. I absolutely could not have made this video half as interesting without his help, at least on the part where it's just static stuff going on. I do want to give myself some chops, though. I found a picture of a snail, and I animated it going from the left to the right side of the screen. So that part, that one's me. All of the rest of it is really him. Well, the middle part of the video was the normal level of difficulty for doing a screencast. I recorded my process of planning out my apps using the iThoughts mind mapping software. I used our standard tool, ScreenFlow, from Telestream. And that was easy because I could record my screen as I built up a mind map for the audience. And in this part of the video, I explain how I create uh, little nodes for my uh, mission-critical apps, my high-priority apps, and my low-priority apps. And I put them all into little, into a, a, you know, connected to a node. And then I create an identical set of mission-critical, high-priority, and low-priority tasks that need to be accomplished. And I also have sub bubbles for all 
what, six of those that are still to do and completed. So as I complete them, I move them, I color code them. Anyway, that was a really fun part of the video to do because it's something I do all the time. And again, really passionate about using a mind map to solve this problem, to set up how am I going to go forward in doing a clean install. But that left us the last third of the video. So the first third is all the static stuff where JF made it interesting. The middle part was where it was easy because I was just uh, recording uh, um, iThoughts using ScreenFlow. But the last third was when I had to record my screen while doing an actual nuke and pave. I decided to use my 2015 12-inch MacBook as the sacrificial lamb to be erased. Now, recording a clean install means I absolutely cannot use ScreenFlow to record the screen. There would also be no do-overs with this part if I made any mistakes at all. So how to do it and do it well was the question. The solution I chose had a few tricks to it. I decided to use an iPhone 11 Pro on the tiny little tripod that Pat Dangler told us a few about a few weeks ago. That's the Griptite One Micro Stand. After her review, I ran out and bought it immediately. Anyway, that would allow me to point the iPhone's camera up at the MacBook screen right in front of me, but not really be in my way very much. A real tripod would be, you know, putting it in my face and be completely in my way as I'm trying to work on the MacBook. So that little tiny micro stand was perfect for the job. Now, recording a computer screen with any camera comes with some big challenges. The first challenge was, how do I get rid of reflections? Steve hung a big blanket over the window behind me, and I had to turn out all of the lights to make sure nothing else was lit up. In the earlier parts of the video, even with the lights off, you can occasionally see a little smudge of my shirt reflecting in one corner. So the light coming off of my, uh, my big screen, which I had open at the time, was reflecting off of my shirt and slightly making this little smudge in one corner. For the last bit of the video, I actually wore a black shirt, so it's less noticeable. Anyway, when I first showed Steve some of the footage, he was shocked to see my hands on the keyboard in the video. Well, that's pretty hard to eliminate, right? Because I'm typing on the keyboard and the camera is looking at the screen, so my hands are bigger than zero height. No way around it. All right, now I've got my hardware plan. The next trick was to figure out the software on the phone for the recording. I couldn't use the standard camera app that comes with iOS because it would automatically keep changing the exposure as the screen went from jet black with an Apple logo to bright white rectangle for the recovery screen. I needed an app that would give me a static exposure. I own Halide, which is an app that allows you to shoot raw photos and gives you full manual control of the camera. Halide, as near as I could figure, though, didn't support video. Then I remembered Apple showcasing the, the app Filmic Pro during the keynote. This app will allow iPhone 11 users to film from more than one camera at the same time. Now that's going to be wicked cool, so I knew I'm going to want to buy Filmic Pro eventually, so I decided to check it out to see if it could, cause, it, it could solve this problem too. By the way, that feature is not available yet in Filmic Pro, but it will be, But so I know I'm going to want to buy it. What if it could do the job? Well, it turns out Filmic Pro was the perfect tool for the job, because not only can you adjust the exposure and other settings for a video shoot, you can store a preset of those settings. That was a huge advantage because it allowed me to stop the video recording during the very long, boring parts of doing a reinstall of macOS and not just fill my phone up with these incredibly long videos. Then I was able to turn it back on when things got exciting again. I wouldn't have to fill with any, fiddle with any of the settings and try to guess where I'd set it before. Instead, I could just tap the preset button and I knew I'd get the matching exposure from take to take. 
The good news is I remembered to hit the preset all but the very last part of the shoot. I was kind of bummed, but it turned out in ScreenFlow, there are some exposure settings you can do in post, and I was able to make it not too jarring of a change for that last little bit. Now, putting the phone into the tripod mount was also tricky for two reasons. I had to make sure that the control to tap the preset, which was nearly in the middle of the display, was not blocked by the tripod mount itself. But the hardest part was to figure out how to frame the computer in relation to the MacBook screen. I had to tilt the computer screen downwards from the top so that it matched the angle of the that the iPhone was tilted up to see it from that little tiny tripod. If I didn't get the two screens parallel to each other, the viewer would see the MacBook keystone so it looked like a trapezoid instead of a rectangle. Now, I know I could have fixed that in the new Apple Photos app, as I explained in a recent article, but the video clips would have to all be adjusted one at a time to match each other. It's always better to fix problems before they occur rather than to try to edit and post. Oh yeah, one more thing. I had to get the top of the Mac, sc- the Mac screen parallel to the top of the video too. I couldn't have anything tilted. Now, I'd like to make one note about the content as well. I was more worried than ever to be extremely clear and precise on the advice I was giving in this video. You realize I'm telling people to erase all of their data. Can you even imagine how awful it would be if I made a mistake in how to go about doing this? Of course, I showed them the tools to make bootable clones, and I had to learn and teach how to turn off the feature that keeps modern Macs from booting from those bootable clones. You see, the T2 chip prevents it by default. You have to turn that feature off in order to have a bootable clone be able to boot after you're done erasing it. So I put links in the app uh, to the Apple support articles for how to do the reinstalls. And I said repeatedly throughout the video, read the, d- the documentation. Don't just listen to me. I said it again in my show description and Don wrote it a third time in his email to subscribers as well. And I'm telling you that again right now here. Other than that, making a video of how to do a clean install was a piece of cake. Many, many thanks to JF for making the beginning not boring. I've included in the article that I put on podfeet.com that I'm telling you about right now, a link to the teaser video that you can watch for free and you can get a free seven-day trial to watch the full video, but then you'll probably get hooked and become a subscriber. So realize that that comes with a, uh, a big danger sign. Anyway, I had a lot of fun making this. I was really pleased with how it came out and worked out really well in Don's schedule because right now he's telling people how to install Catalina. And one of the reasons you might want to do a clean install is to do it right before you install a scary new operating system. This week, I attended the Mac Tech Conference for the first time. I'd heard about it for ages from Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab, but for two reasons, I hesitated for a very long time about whether to attend. Even though it's conveniently in Los Angeles, It's super expensive. I used a pre-registration discount this year, which saved me $400. And after that discount, it was still $1,200 for a three-day conference. Just for comparison's sake, MacStock Expo is $249 for three days. Well, I do have to say, though, that they're very different conferences. In fact, the other reason I had for hesitating was that I was afraid MacTech would be too deep technically for me. Now, I consider myself a reasonably bright girl. That's a phrase coined by a man at IBM talking to my friend Linda in the late 1980s. Anyway, I consider myself reasonably bright, but I'd heard so much about the really deep technical topics at uh, MacTech that I was worried I'd be lost and wasting my money. The good news is that I was able to find sessions that were very interesting to me. Let's back up and talk about who I think the intended audience is for MacTech. 
It really splits into two groups, people who are Apple consultants and people whose job it is to manage Macs and networking in a company environment. The size of the company does not dictate who would find value, but rather just that you're responsible for other people's computers. It's not at all intended for enthusiasts, which is really the target audience for Mac Stock Expo, so they are very, very different conferences. I do have to say I had a fantastic time at Mac Tech, and I will probably attend again. I'd like to tell you every single little thing I learned from every single session and every person I met, but that would be impractical. Instead, I'm going to do a bit of a deep dive into just a couple of the talks and highlight what I learned from those presenters. You may remember that I installed Python on my Mac. I did this so that I could run a Python script that would stitch the 180 video clips per hour that my Tesla records and make one coherent video. In my article about this adventure, I explained that I had to install a recent version of Python, 3.7.4, because Apple includes Python 2.7 by default. I also talked in the article about how tricky it was to get the new uh, the operating system to let me use that newer version of Python. I also mentioned that Apple will no longer be shipping Python and any other scripting languages like Ruby and Perl with the next op- or with some future operating system. Now my initial thought was that this was a good thing. If they don't include the latest version, wouldn't it be better to not ship anything in it at all? Well, yes, but At MacTech, I attended a session entitled Python, Apple, and You by a fantastic presenter named Greg Neagle from Disney. I love this guy because he put in plain English explanations that even I could follow of what the problems will be. I don't mean to demean myself here, but I don't know anything about Python. I literally installed it and then ran away and got, you know, I got something to run, but I don't know anything about it. So the fact that he was able to explain what the problems were in plain English that I could understand is an accomplishment, I think. Even better, he offered very specific solutions to some of the problems he described, many in the form of tools he had personally written to smooth the way. Now, I promise my regurgitation of what he told us will not be too nerdy, even if you're not a programmer at all, but I'll tell you a few things why you actually do care. He explained what I mentioned earlier about how Apple won't be shipping scripting languages in quote-unquote future updates with no clue as to when that will be. You know, is it going to be a point release in Catalina? I don't know. It will be a future OS named Mammoth? Nobody knows. But there are some very scary things we do know. The version of Python currently running in macOS 2.7 will actually be end of life by the open source development community at python.org, end of life, in January of 2020. That's really, really soon. That's like a couple of months from now. Now, oddly enough, the latest update will come out after that in April 2020. That means after April of next year, there will be no security patches to Python 2.7. Now, my guess is that it might disappear from macOS sometime between January and April of 2020. But maybe it'll be the next OS. We don't know. But why do we care about 2.7 if this new version of Python is already out there? 3.7.4. Actually, I checked. I think it's on 3.8 now. Well, it turns out that tons of applications use Python scripts for their package installers, and they're using Python 2.7. So they run these Python scripts before installation and afterwards doing, uh, d- you know, during cleanup processes. Now, you're probably thinking, ah, these are probably rinky-dink little developers who don't know any better. You'd be wrong. Greg explained that Office 2019 uses Python 2.7 in its installer. So does Office 365. So does Adobe Acrobat Reader's installer. 
Now, Greg didn't elaborate any further than that because he had our attention now. He told us about a tool written by Armin Briegel that you can point at a folder of package files and it'll tell you what scripting language they're, they're calling. And that way you can see if uh, Python 2.7 is involved. Now, for people who deploy a lot of Macs and have to ensure their applications all run, this is a really valuable tool. I had dinner that night with a woman who was responsible for a fleet of Macs at a video production company. She has a lot of Maya software, and their installer is based on Python 2.7. She was not at all happy with what she had learned in that talk. Of course, the Maya folks are going to have to fix this, but it's her job to make sure they do before she can upgrade her users to a new OS. You starting to see the problem even for folks who are not developers? For the even nerdier, Greg told us about a tool he wrote that will allow developers to download a relocatable version of Python. Okay, remember Python 2.7 is already on our Macs, and you need to get this Python 3 and later, but they can't live in the same directory at the same time. He also noted that Apple adds some Mac-friendly stuff to Python that could be useful, so he packaged that all up in the same tool. And Greg posted his tool on GitHub for all to enjoy. Link in the show notes. Now I'm starting to get lost here in the talk. It got a lot deeper than that. But I'll give you two more tidbits in case you do dabble in Python, you know, like people like Klaus. But I'm going to stay in plain English. In programming, there are tools that fall under the umbrella term called lint. A lint tool is one that scans some code to tell you what's wrong with it. It looks for programming errors and bugs, you know, that kind of thing. As you might be able to guess, there's one called Pilot for detecting errors in Python code. Greg added a little tip here. If you invoke Pilot and add the flag dash py3k, it will look for things in your code that won't work with Python 3. I liked learning that the flag contains 3k because Python 3 is sometimes called Python 3000. Finally, he talked about a set of instructions he really liked called the Conservative Python 3 Porting Guide. The reason he recommended it was because the theme of this guide is, what is the least amount of work I can do? Don't you wish every guide had that theme? His final link was to all of the services he uses and has provided himself, all in one handy link at managingosx.wordpress.com. And I said OSX on purpose because it's an X when I'm reading the URL. Don't yell at me later. Another awesome talk I went to was by Tim Standing from Otherworld Computing called, uh, you might have heard them called OWC at MaxSales.com. Anyway, this talk was definitely nerdy, but there was some information that I think might be interesting to most of us. The talk was about the new volume structure in macOS Catalina. I am not an expert on this topic, so it's really dangerous for me to explain this, you know, unlike teaching you about Python that I don't know anything about. But I'm going to try to stay at a pretty high level where I'm pretty confident I'm maybe 98% or 90% right. The big thing Apple changed in going from Mojave to Catalina is that our operating system is now on a completely different volume from our data. This has been changed in order to even more effectively uh, protect us from malware and poorly designed applications. You may recall that Apple changed our file system to APFS a while back. In the old days, we would partition our drives, but the unallocated space could not be shared, which was a big waste of space. APFS allows us to share space between different volumes on a single physical drive. This means with separate volumes instead of partitions, you don't have wasted empty space in both of them. The term we use to describe this concept is APFS containers. So APFS containers contain volumes. In disk utility with APFS, you can add and delete volumes willy-nilly, and they each show up looking like a brand new hard drive that has been attached to your Mac. 
If you only have one volume on your Mac on Mojave, you may never have seen these extra volumes. You can create those extra volumes I'm talking about willy-nilly and all on Mojave. But if you haven't ever done it, like I said, you're only going to see one volume if you're on Mojave. But with macOS Catalina, Disk Utility now shows two volumes by default, Macintosh HD and Macintosh HD Data. You know, of course, it's going to be different if you've named it yourself. But the important thing is one has nothing after it. One says data after it. That second volume, the one with data on the name, gives you the read-write privileges you want, and you can do anything to it you like. The one that says simply Macintosh HD is actually a read-only volume, and you cannot play with it at all. This is where your system files live. What I've just described is how it looks in Disk Utility. When you look at it in the Finder, though, they don't want you to worry your pretty little head about all this, so your read-writable data drive will simply be called Macintosh HD without the word data. Now, I still think this is a good thing, but it is a bit headbendy when you look at Disk Utility and it's not named the same thing. In fact, one of them is named Macintosh HD, but it doesn't have data and it means the other one. Anyway, the good news is that in Disk Utility, the volume you're allowed to play with Macintosh HD data has a little home icon attached to the disk icon, so you can tell that that one's yours. All right, all this has been groundwork to tell you what Tim talked about. He explained that these two volumes appear to have the exact same contents. I took a screenshot of his slide where he showed that in Macintosh HD, you will have slash system slash library, and you also have slash users. If you look on the data version of Macintosh HD, you'll see that same structure. These two volumes share that one APFS container. The files and folders look the same because they use what are called firm links between these two volumes. Now, here's a fun fact to know and tell. These two volumes are not the only ones in that APFS container. There's also a volume called Preboot and one for Recovery, but these last two don't show up in the volume list in Disk Utility. All four of those volumes, though, must be in the same APFS container in order for the Mac to boot. Now, I assume, hope, that the bootable backup people who make Super Duper and Carbon Copy Cloner will be paying really close attention to this part. Tim then addressed an interesting conundrum this whole concept of read-only system drive creates. How on earth do you install a kernel extension if you can't write to that drive? Well, Apple did something really creative here. Remember that the two volumes appear to have pretty much the same structure. When you run an installer that wants to install a kernel extension, it's going to put that KEXT file in the normal system place, but it won't really be on the system volume. It's going to be on your data volume. A firm link, not to be confused with a hard link or a symbolic link, will be created by the system software. When you reboot your Mac, the firm link to the KEXT will be copied over to the system volume where it belongs. Now, here's why it can do this. Remember that system volume is read-only. You can't write to it. The very top-level process with all rights and privileges is called LaunchD. LaunchD shuts down every single process during shutdown. That means it can be 100% certain that no nefarious application or utility is trying to write to that system drive. At that point, with no processes running but itself, LaunchD flips the system volume to be read-write, copies in the KEXT file, and then it flips it back to read-only before booting up. I know that was nerdy, but it's so clever I really felt compelled to tell you about it. If you were worried that this new volume structure would make it impossible to install interesting pieces of hardware or software for your Mac because of security, hopefully you'll at least be cautiously optimistic now. 
If you'd like to learn more about APFS, Tim did a presentation at MaxisAdmin 2018 that covers uh, that topic as well as explaining the implications of the T2 chip, and that presentation is publicly available. They posted it on the Max Sales blog for all to enjoy, and of course, there's a link in the show notes. Tim is an engaging and interesting speaker and super excited about his topic, so I guarantee that you're going to learn something. I went to a talk on script debugging by a gentleman named Sean Collins, and I'm definitely not going to go through everything I learned in his talk. I do want to tell you one single mind-blowing thing that I learned from Sean, though. He suggests that if you've been staring at your code for a very long time and you simply cannot see your mistake, try changing the font size. He said that this fixes what he likes to call code blindness. As soon as he said it, I could totally picture this working. Changing the font size will cause all the lines of code to sort of shift around with respect to each other, and suddenly that extra squirrely bracket or that missing semicolon might just become immediately obvious. Sean was a phenomenal speaker, and he volunteered to be on Chit Chat even without me prompting. I hope to do that sometime soon. Well, Sal Segoyan, the father of automation at Apple, was an attendee at MacTech. I spent a fair bit of time with him, and he told a couple of stories that were interesting. He said that when he first got a job at Apple, he lived in an apartment across the street from the office. He would go to the building at, say, 2 in the morning and test his badge on every single door he could find. His theory was, if his badge worked, then it must be okay for him to go in. He especially liked going into conference rooms because he discovered he could boot the Macs in the room and see all of the presentations people had given from that room. Now, I'm sure they're more protected now, but back then he said it was great because by watching presentations, he could figure out who the engineers were he needed to get to know and what they were working on. He also discovered that he could go into the library where they stored recordings of every single WWDC. He said he learned a lot at 2 a.m. watching these shows. He told us this story at lunch as an explanation of his personality because it would be relevant to his presentation. The anecdote illustrates how he likes to go around twisting door handles to see if he can get in somewhere and then to poke around inside and see what he can find. That trait is what allowed him to figure out something really cool that he presented in his session at Mac Tech. I will definitely not be able to do justice to his discovery, but I'm going to try that anyway. He's going to make a video tutorial on exactly how to do what he showed us, and as soon as that's available, I will definitely send you guys a link to it. Cell discovered a way to make a touchscreen control pad for your Mac. In order to do this, you need three things. You need a Mac, an iPad, and the Luna Display dongle that lets you create a second screen to your Mac. He was quite specific to point out that you cannot do this trick with Apple's sidecar features in macOS Catalina. You must use the Luna Display. If you are familiar with Luna Display, I wrote an article about it entitled Luna Display Turns Your iPad into a Mac Monitor with Low Latency. If you open Accessibility Preferences in System Preferences and you turn on the Accessibility Keyboard, you'll be able to play along with Sal's Discovery. Inside there, you'll find a button for Panel Editor. This invokes a double-secret application in System Library Input Method called AssistiveControl.app. I told you he digs around Rattles doorknobs. He found that in there. I think he found that in there first before he found the accessibility preference. Anyway, the panel editor lets you create buttons on a grid that lets you do all kinds of interesting and useful things. When you hit the plus at the top to add a new button, you can add several functions to that button. You can launch an application, run a script, access a menu, or even execute a a keystroke. 
Knowing that, he suggests a way to lay out these buttons for maximum productivity. He creates three areas on the grid. Across the top, he puts buttons for his favorite applications. Not only will they allow you to launch an application, if they're already open, you can instantly switch to that application. You can even add the graphical icon for the application, which makes it easier to easily jump to the application you desire. Across the bottom, he puts his favorite system preferences, so they're easy to access and they're in an order that makes sense to him. I love this idea. In the center section, he puts app-specific buttons. He's a keynote fanatic, so in his example, he showed us how he made buttons for things like magic duplicate, move to end, delete slide, and a ton more that are only visible to him when he's in keynote. Now, you can do all of what I've described just with Mac OS, so you can play around this with this if you want, but to make this a touchscreen control requires an iPad and Luna Display. So remember, Luna Display lets you extend or mirror your Mac display, and in this case, we're going to extend our display. If you slide the control surface over to the iPad, you now have a touchscreen controller for your Mac. It's positively brilliant. Now, you may be wondering why this won't work in Sidecar at this time and why it requires Luna Display. That's because Apple has specifically disabled touch on the iPad in the area where the Mac screen is displayed. Now, there are places you can touch on the iPad using uh, Sidecar, but it's only the little buttons that they give you for things like, uh, I don't know, to do a shift key or a command key or a, a couple of things like that. You can also use your fat fingers on the representation of touch bar on that same screen, but the area where the Mac screen itself is displayed does not allow touch with your fingers. I imagine it's because macOS isn't optimized for big fat fingers and Apple doesn't ever want us to have a bad experience. However, you can use an Apple Pencil to touch the Mac's display on your iPad using Sidecar, so that might work with this whole, uh, you know, second display being used as a, as a control pad. But, you know, holding a pencil in your hand while working primarily on your Mac may not be as useful as it sounds. I've started fooling around with making a touch control pad for myself using Mojave, and I've got some ideas of where this could really help me out. I'm hoping to add some automation to how I work with ScreenFlow when using, doing videos for Don. Now, I know I'm retired, but I need more time to play with stuff like this. I just seem to run out of time when I'm trying to do this kind of thing. Bottom line is I met great people at MacTech, and I learned a lot. It is definitely a very expensive uh, conference, and it's pretty geeky. But if you support a fleet of Macs, it could be invaluable. By the way, I did some interviews, uh, just two of them, with two of the sponsors of the show, but I'm going to leave those until next week. I was thinking on my walk today about the ways you can support the shows here. I often encourage using Patreon and PayPal to support us financially, and Amazon affiliate links do an awful lot to help pay for the tools to make the shows as well. But there's another way to, show, to support the show that I rarely mention. If you haven't ever reviewed the shows in iTunes, that's a way to get more people interested in the content we create. More people means more voices to learn from in our social channels for the PodFeed podcast. I know it sounds way old school to use iTunes since even Apple doesn't use it for podcasting anymore, but it turns out iTunes is the directory that all of the podcatchers use, so it helps raise visibility for the shows you review there. You can review the NoSilicast, Chit Chat Across the Pond, Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, Programming by Stealth, and Taming the Terminal all separately, depending on which one gives you joy. Maybe they all do, maybe only one. But take a look. Go over to iTunes and give it a review. If you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to push some stars and write a note about why you like the shows, that would be really swell. 
Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boost Shots. Are we going to have fun today, Bart? Well, I hope so. That's that's the point. <laughs> yeah. I do want to give the audience a, a warning here. Steve is in the process of mounting a wise cam to the window on the inside of our garage door and routing some cabling so it doesn't get all messed up when the garage door opens and closes. So he may open and close the garage door from time to time. And I am sitting on top of the garage. So the garage door opener and its entire mechanism is connected to the floor of my studio. (laughs) Oh, I can't see what could possibly go wrong. (laughs) So if Bart is talking what happens, I will mute. But if it's me, you may hear while I'm doing it. Hopefully not. To to us weird foreigners who don't have garage openers, how how long does it take to actually open a garage? Just a few seconds, but it's a it's a giant door that's being folded up. It's being rolled up in sections, and it's got it's geared and and it's it's pretty hefty sound. Okay, I'm I'm just curious (laughs) over here. Our garage doors don't do that; they're one solid piece, and you just. Lift them up. Rotate them up. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a fancy pants one. Anyway, let's Mm -hmm. dig into some security stuff. Okay. So two security mediums before we get stuck into the plain old regular stuff. Um, Security medium, the first one. Just a little reminder that the Apple card is neither unicorn nor magic. (laughs) Are there people who think it is? Well, there's certainly... It's being reported on as if we're supposed to think it is. Mm. So... What happened is that there were two cases of fraud involving Apple cards, and it was almost reported as if that's supposed to be impossible. But no, that's not how it works. So when Apple introduced the card, they were very careful to say that the best way to use Apple Card is through Apple Pay, and that that's the default, and that that's what they want you to do. But as a fallback, they offered you a physical card for when you needed something physical, and a virtual card number for when you had no choice online. But at all points, they call those fallback mechanisms. And the reason is because once you fall back to either of those mechanisms, you're just like everyone else, right? If you give right. your card number to a website and that website is breached, well, yeah, it's a card, card number, number right? To, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and if you swipe your card number through a mag swipe reader, well, it's still magnetism. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a tape, <laughs> right? Right. It's a, it's a really short cassette, like you know, two seconds of music or something, but that's all it is. So. It's just as vulnerable as any other card when you fall back. So what we saw happen is that one guy got his card cloned. Uh, that's through the mic stripe. And not through chip and pin. Very important to note that it wasn't that his chip and pin was cloned. It was that his mic stripe was cloned. Okay. And another guy had his card number leak. And it turns out he used the virtual number online and the website was breached. So not so, magic. <laughs> no. Okay. So the... the I know I've heard people on podcasts say that they don't care if it does Apple Pay. They want they don't want to use Apple Pay on their phone. They want to use the titanium card. And I'm starting to think Apple may have been a bit silly to make the card so cool. Yeah. Because people yeah, they didn't quite think it through, so I I think slightly <laughs> because people want to use the titanium when they really should be using Apple Pay. Yeah, even though, and it makes no sense because you only get 1% when you use the the, uh, the card, and I think you get 2% when you use the, uh, if it's not an Apple purchase. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. So it actually is a genuine financial incentive as well as a security incentive. Right, right. 
Huh. Okay. Yeah, and the other well, thing I heard someone complain. Oh, it was on this very podcast. Um, huh? Someone said that they were the cranky that the physical Apple Card didn't have Touch to Pay, didn't have NFC. And I'm like, no, that's what Apple pays for. <laughs> oh, so if you have an Apple Card, that means you have Apple Pay. You have an Apple Pay co- uh, compatible device. Why wouldn't you use that? Yes, which is what Apple wants you to do, which is why there's no NFC chip in, in the Apple card. Makes yeah, perfect sense. I can see cases where you might not have your credit card with you, but when do you not have your phone or your watch with you? Speaking for me personally, just when I'm asleep. <laughs> and I <laughs> try not to purchase things at that state. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah, it is interesting. You're using the words Apple's not magic. Apple card is not magic. I've had people who don't never thought that hard drives would ever fail in a Mac. Well, they're the exact same things that are in PCs. They're identical. There's nothing magic. I mean, maybe they use better components, you know, more reliable has been shown to some extent, but still physics. Yeah, a better version of the same fundamental technology is still vulnerable to all the same foibles, just less often. Not never, just maybe if, you know, maybe a bit less often. Right, it's like, right. you know, a Volvo. It's not that they never break down, but they are a little better. Anyway, security meeting the second also revolves around Apple. They're just destined to rule our show today. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next kerfuffle, which has a fire extinguisher icon, um, Apple tweaked the wording on their Safari privacy statement. And depending on how you choose to read the English, it could be interpreted as saying that Apple were going to send everything to Tencent, who are a Chinese firm. It's not really what it said. It's also open to the actual facts that we now know them. But anyway, their English was open-ended and some people read it and jumped to the worst possible conclusion and the internet exploded with, oh my God, Apple are sending your browsing history to Tencent. That's kind of the way I heard it on MacBreak Weekly two weeks ago. Yeah, so let's cut to the chase and say no, that's not what's happening. But let's now wind back a bit and look at what the details, because this is where we're nerds and we like to know how these things hang together. So all of this is to do with an important security protection that's enabled by default on all versions of Safari. So whether you're on iOS or the Mac, same behavior. Uh, Apple call it their fraudulent website warning. And you can toggle it off if you'd like. What it does is if you browse to a URL that's known to be malicious, it will put up a warning saying, by the by, you're on a website that we know to be naughty. And the theory is you won't enter your username and password, your credit card number, yada, yada, yada. Useful feature. Where do you find that? Is it in the Safari preferences somewhere? It is in the Safari preferences somewhere. I, okay, honestly, we don't have to find exactly, had- but... Okay, just I was curious because I didn't hadn't come across it. It's on by default, so it's not one that you would generally go looking for because why would you why would you not want a warning that you're on a fraudulent website? <laughs> right, right. It would seem like a good idea. Maybe it still is. It's it's a fantastic idea to keep it turned on. So these features work through a blacklist which is maintained as it happens by the people who spend most of their time searching the internet, the search engines. The most, simply the leader in the world in keeping this blacklist up to date is Google Safe Browsing. So it's an API Google provide free of charge of all of the malicious URLs they're aware of. Uh, It's not available in China. So 
in China, you cannot use Google Safe Browsing, so you have to use something else. And the something else is the identical API implemented by Tencent. So if you're in China, you use the Tencent API. Anywhere else, you use Google Safe Browsing. And Safari is by no means alone in this. With the exception of Edge, all the major browsers use Google Safe Browsing because it's just, you know, the safe thing to do. So Firefox do this, Opera do this, Chrome obviously do this, and Safari do this. And maybe Microsoft has their own blacklist, I don't know, but they're not listed as supporting Google Safe Browsing. Okay. So Why did everybody lose their mind about this? Did somebody misinterpret the first article or something? I, you know, I get. Why do your homework? It's easier to get clicks if you don't. That's my cynic hat on at the moment, but I can't think of any other reason. Because if you actually look into how the API works, there's even less there. There, so the fear was, oh my god, Google could track us. That was the obvious immediate fear, and that's based on the assumption that every time you visit a web page, Safari would send. I'd ping to Google saying, here's the URL the person said, is this malicious? Here's the URL the person said, is this malicious? And then Google could track us. That was the thinking. But the Google Safe Browsing API doesn't work like that because it would be denial of service out of existence and because no one would use it because it would be a privacy train wreck. So how it actually works is that Google, they have this database of all the known bad websites and they start by breaking the URL into a prefix and then the remainder of the URL. And they separately hash the prefix and the whole URL. And your browser periodically says to Google, can you just give me all the prefix hashes, please? And your browser keeps a local copy inside itself of all the prefix hashes. And every time you visit a website, it checks the prefix of the website with the prefix hashes, and 99.9% of the time there will be no match, and it then knows that you are not on a malicious website. So it hasn't sent anything to Google, uh, apart from the one request saying, give me all the malicious websites on the planet. Well, that doesn't tell Google anything, apart from the fact that this IP address has a human who uses the internet. (laughs) Right, right. So on the one, on the odd chance that you do go to a phishing website, you will then get a match on one of the prefix hashes. At that stage, your browser still doesn't send Google the URL you're at. What it does is it says to Google, give me all of the hashes for this prefix. And then Google sends all the hashes for the prefix. Your browser then checks those hashes and then knows what to do. So Google get to know that an IP address went to one of a few thousand possible malicious URLs. A specific IP address. Right. Your IP address. No cookies. Right. And no actual URLs. So the amount of information here is zero of any use. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to say is IP addresses, like if there were cookies, this would be vaguely useful. They would now have tracked you down to one of a few thousand websites. It's not a lot of information, but there are no cookies in this in these um, HTTP requests. So literally all they have is the IP address and this vague, you're in this vague chunk of the internet. And nowadays in particular, one IP address has many humans and one human moves around through many IP addresses. 
So mapping an IP address to one of a few thousand web pages is not a privacy violation that is worth losing any sleep over whatsoever. <laughs> Whereas this blacklisting feature has massive value and safety and security. So the trade-off seems spectacularly, blindingly obvious to me, which is why Firefox, who are extremely pro-privacy, and Apple, who really do bang on the privacy drum very hard, are perfectly happy to use this API. It is designed with privacy in mind. That's that's good. (laughs) It's fantastic. So basically, I tried my absolute hardest to squint at this in such a way that I could find something to be legitimately concerned about. I cannot. All right. Well, I'm glad you gave it no a good there, tra- there. college try. I gave it a Scouts Honest try um, because it had the word Google. So my brain was like, okay, look carefully. But no, it's, 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 it, no, it's fine. So notable security updates. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. Microsoft and Adobe did the honors. Uh, Microsoft fixed a fairly nasty re- Windows remote desktop client vulnerability. Little remote code execution there. And Adobe gave some TLC to the Acrobat PDF readers and writer apps. Signal very, very promptly patched a nasty bug in their app, which is basically the same bug as that famous FaceTime one that had Apple shut FaceTime down for a couple of, FaceTime video down for, no, group calls, that was it. Group calls for, was it, a few weeks? Yeah. Signal ended up with a similar auto-answer problem due to a mistake they had made. They fixed theirs within 24 hours. Oh, good, good. So if you use Signal, update the app, hunky-dory fine. Good. Apple have patched their Windows software, and they've also released macOS Catalina, um, but which has some security fixes, but really the Windows software is the big one. The bugs they patched in Windows are being actively exploited in the wild to distribute ransomware. So if you are a Windows user of iTunes or is there anything else? Apple's iCloud, that was the other one. <laughs> iTunes or iCloud. You need to patch ASAP. And there's a tiny little gotcha here that actually makes me a little bit cranky. So if you install either iTunes or iCloud, you get a little friend tagging you along called Bonjour because both those products rely on Bonjour to do some of their work. This is on Windows guess, you're talking about, right? Yes, this is on Windows, because in the Mac, Bonjour is part of the core OS. It's implemented by MDNS. Um, so I guess the logic goes that if you install iTunes and then you want to install it, what if you have iCloud? If I were to remove Bonjour, I could do myself damage. But of course, why don't you check? Either way, the point being... The uninstallers for both iTunes and iCloud leave Bonjour behind. And the bug is in Bonjour. So if you think you've uninstalled the two pieces of Apple software you installed, you may actually be more vulnerable because you're not going to get told about an update and you're running a vulnerable version of Bonjour. This sounds like it's like 90% as bad as that Zoom thing. I mean, Zoom installed a web browser without telling, I mean, a web server without telling you. And this isn't as bad as that, but it's that kind of thing, right? Where it leaves it behind even when you uninstall it. But it doesn't proactively reinstall itself. So okay, that's still a different level of, this is carelessness as opposed to malice. <laughs> right, or we it's know still bad practice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. it's sloppy. It's it's shouldn't do it, Apple. So Apple deserve a, a tip on the knuckles for that, that they shouldn't leave stuff behind. An uninstaller should uninstall. 
So, but anyway, it is patched now, though. Or what is yeah, fully actually, patched? Yes. If you uninstalled it, then there's nothing to patch. So how is that? No, work? there is because Bonjour stayed behind. So you need to reinstall iTunes to fix your Bonjour. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, what you have left behind won't say, "Hey, I need an update." It's not yeah. going to tell you that, right? You have to know to go do that. Okay. Yeah, that's why it's more dangerous uh, to have removed the software than not, which yeah. is perverse. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Although I guess oh, you could go into the add remove software thing in Windows and find Bonjour and turf it out. I think that's probably the best thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Um, there's a note to me saying to update in this first piece of news. You can take that out. <laughs> okay. All right. I was expecting as I continued through my RSS reader to find an answer going, ta-da, problem solved. But none of my RSS gave me any further updates. So what I have in the show notes is as much as I know. Okay. So there is a zero-day bug in Android, which affects many popular Android headsets and Hands- the most handsets. notable inclusions. Android handsets. handsets. Did I say headsets? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why. Anyway, okay. Heads. Hand- uh, Android again. handsets. Phones. There you go. Phones. The Google Pixels 1 and 2 and the Samsung Galaxies S7, S8, and S9. It's all the big ones. Yeah, but well, not, not S10 the and Pixel not the 3 or Pixel 4. 3. Okay. And not the S10. Is the S10 out from Galaxy? Yeah, I think so. So this is kind of a weird one because Google thought they patched this bug, but it turns out their patch somehow got lost in the wash. Hmm. Um, so they're expecting to repatch it in the October update, which then means it will hopefully end up get making its way through to people. The slightly scary thing is the bug is being actively exploited in the wild. According to Naked Security, all you have to do is visit a website and you're you're a deep deep doo doo. And according to ZDNet, that's not true. A specific website, not any website, right? That's in a malicious website, isn't it? Yeah. An attacker just has to plant their evil code on a website and trick you into visiting it, and boom. And ZDNet say, no, 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 they have to trick you into installing an app. I don't know which of those two is right. They are not compatible with each other. Either Naked Security is wrong or ZDNet is wrong. Hmm. And the, but either way, there's a bug. And the Naked Security article came out on October 7th. So it's been sitting out there for 13 days so far as of when we recorded this. Yeah, and... I kind of expected to find, oh, and here's Google's October update, but it didn't come into my RSS reader, so I don't, I don't know what's going on. Right, right. I was hoping that would clarify before publishing, but it didn't happen, so okay. sorry. All right. So nothing to be done about it. Be careful where you surf. Be careful where you surf and be careful what you install, I guess. If, if ZDNet is right, let's be careful... That, you know, stick to the reputable bits of the app store. And if naked security is right, surf carefully. By the way, uh, I I interrupted you as you were saying the uh, Android handsets. And so we missed part of this is, is when Bart said Google Pixels 1 and 2, Samsung Galaxy S7, 8 and 9. He said right before that, including but not only those, it's actually uh, Huawei and Xiaomi devices if you have those. So, um, yeah. And the other thing to say is the list in both the Naked Security and the ZDNet articles go out of their way to say these are not exhaustive lists. Okay, so they're just the ones that, we know. Okay. Oh yeah, Moto uh, Moto Z three. Hmm. Ugh, I don't like articles like this. I'm closing. No, those neither do I. I was really hoping that would crystallize a bit before showtime. Yeah. Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency is having a bad two weeks. 
Um, since last we spoke, Visa, MasterCard, eBay and Stripe have all sodded off. Um, at this stage, I think everyone is just sort of on death watch here. They they insist they're going ahead with their big board meeting next week. And they insist they're going to continue with their incorporation process. I, I, it, I think it's dead. Yeah. I'm not sad. <laughs> hey, your next article is about the Galaxy S10. So yes, the Galaxy S10 is out. Yes, it does exist. Unfortunately, they didn't test the fingerprint sensor as well as they should have. If you use the wrong type of screen protector, your Galaxy S10's very fancy underscreen fingerprint reader will read every single fingerprint as perfectly fine and unlock itself. It doesn't matter who you are. Just put your finger on the phone. It goes, ooh, a finger, and it unlocks. By the way, I've heard it's just basically any of the uh, like the cheap gel one, gel sort of sticky ones that you can put on there uh, will do this. Apparently, yeah, it's basically the ones everyone uses, the, the, the screen protectors that are ubiquitous. They confuse the fingerprint reader into thinking that the screen protector is the fingerprint. And so what it saves as your fingerprint is your screen protector, which means that any finger on top of your screen protector looks like the finger it thinks it saved. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Why is it always Samsung's Samsung's flaws are, are just so often? Did you even test this? You know, I would imagine that the test was, does it unlock? Yes. Great. <laughs> and no one thought to test. And does it not unlock when it's not supposed to? Well, on Daily Technic Show, they said that it was uh, if you use the screen protector, they provide you. So maybe I think it mm. comes with one or maybe the glass ones work properly or something. Just the jelly kind of ones don't. I don't know. But it's like, oh, come on. Yeah, I see so, so many. I, I don't understand screen protectors. I, I find them horrible and obnoxious, but I see so many people using them. Like that. I have a friend who's been walking around for two months with a cracked one. So a cracked protector? It, yeah. So, okay, so maybe it did protect her phone. That's awesome. But why would you walk around with a cracked one? It's like <laughs> the person you're going to give your phone to is going to get a really nice phone, but yours is going to look awful the whole time. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, and the screen protector is cheap, so take off the broken one and pop a clean one, if you will insist. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Um, not as bad. But Google's <laughs> new Pixel 4 also doesn't do the biometrics thing as well as it should. It doesn't do attention detection like the iPhones do for Face ID. So you can be completely asleep and your Pixel would unlock if it's waved in front of your face. Oh, come on. That's, I know. That's not good. Like, turn on your photocopiers, folks. That's, that, that's not stealing. That's just learning. So this is specific to the Google Pixel 4? Yes. Wow. Well, I, yeah, that's where all the reporting is on, because that's the one the reviewers are testing. And it's like, oh, that shouldn't have worked. Oh, dear. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Because one of the things that we all imagine we'll do if we're ever asked to give our, you know, give our password up is we'll close our eyes, right? Right. Actually, something, this is a good opportunity to tell people that with the, I think it, I'm not sure whether it changed in iOS 13, but now with iOS 13, I can tell you that if you bring up that screen where you slide the power off, the moment you've brought that screen up, your biometrics are disabled. So you're talking about the, if you, what press and hold on the power on the left i think it is 
or yeah, so it depends on your model of iPhone. So whatever you do to turn your particular iPhone off, if you get to the screen where it says slide to power off, that's all you have to do to disable touch ID and face ID. Ah, okay. That's good. Um, and you'll get a haptic feedback to let you know that screen has popped up so you can do it in your pocket. So if you have an iPhone 10, 10s or 11 of any shade, or indeed, I think the 10 or is the same, you have to press and hold the power button and either one of the volume buttons for two seconds, and then you'll feel the haptic, and then you can stop. If oh. you keep going for five whole seconds, which is a very long time, you will auto-dial emergency services. Right, right. Hey, here's a little hot tip I'm going to sneak in here that I learned on the Mac Geek Abs. Uh, we all love to talk about network protocols like TCP and UDP, right? Well, if, I do. <laughs> if you can remember UDP, you can remember the way to uh, hardcore reboot your phone if it gets completely wedged. There, there's actually been some problems recently where iPhones cannot be shut down through any of the standard means. It's up, mm-hmm. down, power, UDP. Up, so down, power. I think it's like up, All down. All three and, buttons. No, no. Uh, I believe it's one after another. Eh, I'm not willing to oh. try it right now, but it, it's. I think it's no. up, down, and then hold down power. Uh, it's not all three at the same time. I think that's what it is. And uh, anyway, but if you're that UDP. stuck, you can remember UDP, right? Yeah, I still don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I now know that it's up, down, power. Exactly okay. what I'm supposed to do with up, down, and power, I haven't yet learned. But I, I, I have the mnemonic, so I, I guess I'll go learn the rest. Okay, there, I just did. Uh, well, no, that didn't do it. Okay, well, I'll try to figure it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the internet will tell us we don't have to actually power your phone off. That's that's overkill, right? Um, t- t- Twitter have they say they've clarified their approach to politicians who break their terms of service? I guess it's clearer than Facebook's, which is basically do whatever you like. Um, but I didn't find reading their post very illuminating. It was basically a case of we might or we might not. Okay, so as best as I can figure it out, unless you meet, uh, if there's any vague hint that it might be in some sort of part of the public discourse, then the tweet won't be deleted. But if it is part of the public discourse, but it is against the rules, you'll apparently get a warning message that you have to click through. And according to some reporting I've read, you won't be able to retweet a tweet that's been marked as breaking the rules, but I couldn't find that in 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 the link in iMore. So what I heard was that you could uh, retweet while writing something intelligent, or not intelligent, it could be stupid. <laughs> while writing something, you can't just hit retweet. You you. Uh, but I, I think I sort of understood what they're doing. And so this is, uh, just for the background a little bit, this is to address that there may be some politicians who are saying nasty, awful, horrible things that would for a normal person be against the terms of service and the the uh the thing i understood that they said was they see this as being sort of in the category of like presidential uh, letters like it's it's against the the law in the united states for the constitution or something some rule somewhere to delete (laughs) to to erase those records that's that's a matter of public record that has to be maintained and so they are seeing that the tweets actually are part of that public record. So forcing them to take them down would be against that. And that was, that's kind of what they're, they're, they're going back and forth on trying to figure out how to balance that. Cause it is important to know if a politician thinks something really stupid, I think. 
You see, that is the public interest argument in the nutshell, right? Or says and the, something I mean, awful. The legal argument works for the US because you have to preserve records. But the same logic is also being applied around the world because, you know, if if a politician somewhere in India that says something off the wall, that's still newsworthy. That's still something right. the voters should probably know. Right, right. I mean, in this case, I think we're talking about things that are, you know, like intent to harm a human is some of the category of what we're getting into, unfortunately. Well, you see, some of the things, so um, incitement to terrorism, I think, will be deleted regardless of who says it. So they're basically saying that only when there's a public interest argument will they leave the tweet up. They mm-hmm. said that, Like, if you just say, dear followers, please go murder Bob, that's still coming down. Yeah, there's subtleties to the way you can say it. It's all subtlety. Yeah. It, it's, I, I don't, I don't envy in, Twitter in having to do this and figure out the line to... to across oh yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just really yeah. glad i'm not in charge yes no i, I agree with you there yeah it's it, it, yeah it's a fudge it's a great big fudge the link is in the show notes if you'd like to have a read but it's basically asterisk on top of asterisk there's so many <laughs> asterisks you can make an american flag out of it with all the stars yeah or a european flag anyway um Then we switch into the better news. Instagram have updated their apps to give users more and easier control over the data their apps share with third-party services that you choose to connect your app to. Wait. So this... That sounds good. It is good. As I said, we flipped into the good news section. Yeah, but this is owned by Facebook. That can't be right. (laughs) They they can't stop the clock twice a day. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, and when I say third parties here, this isn't advertisers. This is when you choose to use your Instagram account to log into something that's not Instagram. You now have easier control of that. Okay. Uh, And then Microsoft have announced that they're working on a feature for Xbox to allow you to filter the stuff you get sent to you over the Xbox gamey thing. Because apparently that's a bit of an issue. So that's good too. Okay, good. Um. So that then brings us into the suggested reading section. Um, The first one I want to draw your attention to is a warning from Naked Security that you should be just as suspicious of SMS messages as you are of email messages because their from address can be faked just as easily as the from address of an email, if perhaps even more easy given how broken the whole GSM network is. Um, And they're actually slightly more prone to tricking you because it's normal for an SMS message to be artificially short, artificially curt, and grammatically poor because that's how you squeeze it into 240 characters. Uh, so Wait, SMS doesn't have to be 240 characters, does it? That's where the Twitter thing came from. Oh, I missed you turned the corner into Twitter. No, no, no. The reason Twitter has the the original length before they doubled it was because Twitter used to work over SMS, and it was SMS imposed the limit. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's a, it's one of those weird, you know, why why is the space shuttle with the two horses behind sort huh. of things? But yeah, so you used to SMS at a specific number, and that would come up on your Twitter feed. Oh, because we didn't have smartphones; we had phones. Yeah, I did not know that. I thought it was arbitrary. Yeah, so there we go. No, no, not arbitrary. So it's basically, it's the, it's 256, I think is what SMS can do, but Twitter needed some messaging characters, some sort of control characters. So that's why it's 240. Huh. So there you go. 
Oh, but SMS anyway. messages are limited to 160, but it did come from that in the same way. Because they reserved the remaining 20 for the username. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to half it before I said, yeah. <laughs> the 240 is the new double one, isn't it? Anyway. Um, and also, so they're dangerous because you expect your SMS to be short and truncated. Yeah. And bad grammar. And they're also dangerous because there's one type of organization that is very, very likely to communicate with you over SMS, and that is your cell carrier. That's their preferred method of contacting you because it's free for them. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get by an awful lot of two-factor auth, what you need to do is a SIM swap. So starting to trick people into thinking you're their cell carrier and making you go to a web page where you enter stuff, that could be a really good way to get on the road to stealing your cell phone number and hence stealing everything secured via it, like your bank account and stuff like that. So don't blindly trust SMS messages. Be Put your suspicious hat on every bit as much as you do when you're in your mail client. Okay. Um, in terms of notable breaches and privacy violations, just the one, but it's our friends at Twitter, and it's also about two-factor authentication. Now, they proactively admitted to this, which gets them a teeny tiny amount of brownie points. Not many, just a few. Uh, they accidentally misqueried their database, and those cell phone numbers that you gave purely for the purpose of two-factor authentication were used to target ads at you. Oopsie. Anyway. Didn't we already go through that exact exact same thing with Facebook? I mean, exactly that? They asked it, for it does ring a bell, yeah. Yeah. It does actually. Now that you mention it, I think we did. You're right. But I don't, I'm not sure Facebook were as proactive. I, mm, I should stop talking off the cuff. But no, you're definitely some bell ringing going on here. Yeah. In terms of note of news in the suggested reading section, just two stories I want to highlight here. Uh, Patrick Wardle is a very well trusted Apple security or security researcher who focuses on Apple stuff. It's probably, you know, he doesn't have any affiliation with Apple, the company, but he does an awful lot of Mac and iOS security research, and he's very good. Anyway, he posted some interesting details about a malware campaign that is going around attacking Macs, which is unusual. And uh, it's the North Korean government trying to steal Bitcoin. So they've created a front company. That front company has created a fraudulent Bitcoin app. And they have released their software open source on GitHub. But it has malware embedded in it. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see the North Koreans attacking Max. But there we go. And we've talked a few times over the UK's controversial plan to basically have government-mandated age verification where you would have to go into a shop and buy the permission to view adult content online, which had all sorts of people going, uh, hello, George Orwell wasn't supposed to be a manual. <laughs> uh, the government have <laughs> decided that actually we could spend this money by actually trying to fight child pornography instead of with this Rubbish. So they've dropped the plan. Which is good. What's in a manual? Yeah. Opinion and analysis, then. It has been a year since the big hack story from Bloomberg. And at this stage, it's pretty darn wait, wait, obvious. Wait, remind us what, what big hack story? 
So this was the story where we had the picture on the cover showing a rice, a grain of rice sized chip on a motherboard that was supposedly spying on everyone. And if you read the very, very, very small print, it said artist impression. And this, because they didn't actually have about, a photograph. This was about Apple. You didn't say that yet. Well, not only Apple, Apple, Amazon, a whole bunch of big companies were, were hoofed into this. Um, oh, yeah, I guess it were. It seemed like they, they highlighted Apple, definitely. Oh, they certainly did, because that's okay. how you get the clicks. Trying, trying to, you've read the article, the new article, so trying to bring our memories back here. Yeah, basically, the, the, the idea was that you had a supply chain infestation, shall we say, or infiltration, and so that the servers arriving into the data centers for large companies like Apple and Amazon and a few others were pre-hacked by, I think the theory was the Chinese government. I can't remember if it doesn't really matter because it didn't happen. Right. Um, right. And immediately there was pushback. Like one of the guys who was quoted in the article was like, no, 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 I didn't say this was happening. They asked me to describe what could happen. I described what could happen. And they wrote the article as if I said that's what had happened. Right. And it was the guy that actually created that photo or had that created that image. He had it in a talk he was going to give about what could happen. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing just smelled terrible. And the US government actually came out and said, no, 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 no. We're, we're cited in this article too. Not true. We, we did not tell Apple they were hacked because that didn't happen. So the whole thing's been utterly discredited. At no point did Bloomberg retract the story. They continued to stand over it. And they kept on saying things like, now that this is out there, you, the evidence will come rolling in. <laughs> it's been a year. So is Nothing there, has rolled in. So the news is just, hey, in case you forgot about this, no, the news never came rolling in. There is no news. Yeah. Well, no, in case you were still laboring under the false delusion that this happened, it didn't. But, maybe not a coincidence. Anyway, a security researcher decided it was time to see what's possible. So again, this is about possibility. So the security researcher wondered if you could, as a normal person in your kitchen with a cheap piece of silicon from an Arduino controller solder something onto a firewall to hack it. Yes, you can. Basically, for a few dollars, you can booby trap a corporate firewall. So the danger is and remains real. Supply chain security is something that the security industry has to focus on. But no, it still hasn't happened yet. It's still the thing they should be defending against, not the thing that has happened. Um, another one that caught my eye in opinion and analysis was from Naked Security. Um, right, you and I, you're now a programmer. You're now, <laughs> I'm happy to call you that. Um, and something which all programmers have a habit of doing is putting a problem into Google and then copy and pasting the answer from Stack Overflow into their own code. And that's not per se a bad thing, but it's a really dangerous thing to do if you copy and paste code you don't understand. It's perfectly fine to go look at you find the answer and then go, oh, okay, that's how you do it and understand it and then paste it in. If you just copy and paste massive chunks of code, you are probably spreading insecurity all over the place. So think twice. Yeah, I'm afraid I have on occasion done that. I think you may remember the end of my story about putting, uh, installing Python. And there mm. was a step that I went, yeah, I think I understand like the first three terms in that. And I have no idea what the rest of it is, but it's the final step. And I pasted it in and I actually do not know what that does. 
Right, but you did also paste that into an email to me and I think to a few other people saying, by the way, what is this? I did, yeah. So while you did take a risk, you did also, <laughs> you know, if we had come back and said, uh-oh, Alison, you've, you've ruined your PC, you would have reformatted your PC and started over. Right, right. So, you know, don't I have enough too hard spidey sense, but not complete sense. <laughs> yeah. And this is more of an issue if you publish what you've written. Okay. Because then you're spreading yeah. the copy-paste. That's dangerous. And then the last one that gets a star next to it is in a briefing note that the FBI sent to U.S. corporations. They're just warning corporations to be on the lookout for common techniques that are now in use in the wild to bypass 2FA, two-factor authentication. The biggest danger is SIM-swapping attacks. So yet again, folks, it's time to move away from SMS-based two-factor authentication. The second biggest danger is real-time man-in-the-middle attacks, where you put up a fake website which asks for the username, the password, and the one-time code, and that is then immediately used by the attacker in real-time to pretend to be you. So you still, even if you're using uh, two-factor authentication, you still need to actually make sure that when the website says, I can't verify the identity of this site, you still say no, even if you're using two-factor auth. You could still be being man in the middle. You still have to check yeah, the URL bar okay. that doesn't say Facebook I see instead of Facebook. Yeah. Yikes. No free pass, basically. Uh, that's it. Um, I have a palate cleanser for you if we oh, have great. time. We yes. have six minutes. We do. We do. So, many, many moons ago, way back in 1980... Um, some source code for Unix was released and it included a copy of slash etc slash passwd, which contains the hashes of the passwords of the Unix install that the file came from. And that meant it contained passwords for some absolute luminaries in the world of Unix. <laughs> including a certain Eric Schmidt and a certain Stephen Bourne, as in the Born Again or Bash shell. And Eric Schmidt so was jump... the CEO of Google, for those who don't know. Indeed. So Eric Schmidt... Actually, no, Eric Schmidt doesn't lose. Um, the worst password of all of the Unix gurus goes to Stephen Bourne, whose password was Bourne. <laughs> well, he was over there now, naming Schmidt... shells after himself and everything, <laughs> Yeah, now Bourne was in good company because one of the most famous names in Unix and the C programming language is Brian Kernahan because the book on C is called the K&R book and the K in K&R is Kernahan. Okay. So this guy is one of two guys who invented C and literally wrote the book on it. His password briefly looks secure. It's slash dot comma slash dot comma. And you think that's secure until you look at your keyboard and try to type it in. <laughs> it's basically QWERTY. Only in the other corner of the keyboard. Oh, that's funny. Wow. Um, our friend Eric Schmidt, marginally better than these two guys. Wendy, triple exclamation point. His wife is called Wendy. Oh, okay. <laughs> So he at least likes special characters. That is true. For 1980, I guess you could argue he's ahead of the curve. But what was really interesting is this code has been out there since 1980. It's a fairly poor hash. It's uh, DES, not triple DES, just plain old DES. So it's a poor hash. And yet, despite that fact, one of the passwords had remained uncracked until this month. 
That was a password for Ken Thompson, who is one of the original programmers of Unix. And it was finally cracked. Now, two things are known about Ken Thompson, I guess. He helped write Unix and he's a complete chess nerd. So in hindsight, his password makes perfect sense. It's P slash Q2 dash Q4 exclamation point which is the descriptive notation for a very common opening move in a game of chess. What is the move? Uh, queen 2 to queen 4. Is it pawn queen 2 sure to queen 4? It must be the pawn that's sitting in front of the queen 2 to queen 4, I guess. Huh. So I, I don't I, play enough chess to actually <laughs> decipher this. So where, what was this, the password to? Unix. So the, oh, the, wow. their their Unix server that ah. they would log into over Telnet, I guess, because it wouldn't have been SSH yet. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that we range from born to this actually for 1980, really quite secure password. And the fact that it stood up to cracking attempts until now is kind of cool. Yeah, that's amazing. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. A little bit of Unix history thrown in there. So that that's all I got. Well, this is good. This isn't too bad. It's like they uh, they took a little break for you this time. Yeah, I was a bit worried because it was a bit of a hectic weekend. So I got up early this morning. I started writing show notes thinking I'd be at it all day. And it was uh, 12.30 a.m. and I was done. Like, that's oh, that's amazing. nice. I went for a walk and the weather was gorgeous. Well, that's good. I'm glad that they, uh, they uh, were nice to you this week. And uh, I guess we'll talk again in another couple of weeks. Indeed we shall, and until then, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I hope you enjoyed this super jumbo uh, show. Many thanks to Trevor Drover for his accomplishments here that uh, gave us a lot of meat in the show. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions, or maybe your audio reviews, because I love playing them. You can do that at allison at podfeet.com. You can't believe how many times people ask me, how do I email you? Say, really? I say it at the end of every show. Apparently, nobody's listening right now but you guys. Anyway, you can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. Remember, anything you want, anything good, it's always going to start with podfeet.com. So you want to become a patron? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to go to our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.